Scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say, for time would fail to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stones, sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and dens in the caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from them, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our focus this morning is going to be actually in Daniel chapter 3, where the, pulling that one phrase from that reading, that they escaped the power of the fire, is where we're going to be this morning. So you can turn to Daniel 3. We'll get there in a minute, but let's pray. Father, these stories of faith that we've been studying are often victorious in the moment, but as the writer of Hebrews said, as we just read, that there is something even better waiting for us than a temporal, powerful, dramatic deliverance. And so I pray this morning that you'd help us to gauge our hearts, to to be drawn into the story of Jesus to hope and pray for your power to be seen in our lives and in our generations. And yet I pray that the hope of the gospel of Jesus, that a better reward, a new heavens and a new earth and a new body, seeing Jesus face to face, would be deeply planted and resonant in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going we're gonna to be looking at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, which is kind of some funny names if you're not too familiar with the church or with these Bible stories. It's a somewhat famous Bible story, and we'll read through it in just a second, but it's basically three Jewish young men who are put on trial, whether they're going to worship their, or the one true God, Jehovah, or if they were going to worship the gods of the Babylonians, of whom they were at that time, they were in uh, oppression under, they were exiled from the land of Israel in the land of Babylon. And so that's what we're going to be looking at here this morning. Just by one brief uh, kind of caveat, really important before we get rolling into the passage, is we need to have a little bit of an understanding of exile. Everyone say exile. All right, thank you. And um, basically, this is a big theme in the Bible. It almost starts from the very first pages. Man and woman were created. They were in a temple garden. That's the Garden of Eden, if you've heard of it. And that's the place where God dwelled. And so you had God's presence with God's people and God's place, enjoying God's blessing. But when mankind, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, they, they didn't trust him. They didn't believe that he was good and that he was wise and a bunch of other ways you could explain what actually happened that day in the garden. But when they rebelled, God's judgment meant that they were separated out of the garden, hence the very first introduction in the Bible of exile. Exile means you're out of place. You're not where you were meant to be. Okay, and so that's the first exile. And then, you know, the, the promised land that came as the story of the Bible developed later, the promised land was kind of like a uh, kind of up the ante of the Garden of Eden. 
It was supposed to, in a sense, be a bigger Garden of Eden. And the, the way that the promised land is described in the Bible is like the Garden of Eden. And eventually, God's people got into God's place again in, in the promised land. But just like Adam and Eve rebelled, now the whole nation of Israel rebelled, and they worshipped other gods. And so God sent them into, say it, exile. And so exile is this, is this continual theme of you know, being where you're supposed to be in the presence of God, enjoying the blessing and the goodness of God. And then because of human sin, whether it's Adam as our representative or the people of God and Israel as our representative, that rebellion leads to exile. And exile can function in two ways. One, it can be like a straight-up judgment. Okay? It can be a place of you know, punishment, so to speak where you lose the blessing of God, you lose the presence and fellowship of God. So exile can be judgment. But exile also, for those who have faith in God, or later on in the story, in Jesus, can be a place not of punishment and judgment, it can be a place of testing and refining. Okay? And so we're going to see that. That's so all of that's like, I thought we were going to be in Daniel 3. Go in there right now. Put that in your back pocket. You're going to need that. Okay? You're going to need that to understand. That's the context, actually, of Daniel chapter 3. The nation of Israel, the, the, king, the kingship and dynasty looks like it's in disarray. We, they don't even really know who the next king's going to be. The temple's been destroyed. Most of the nation has been displaced from Israel. Many of the leaders, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's their Babylonian names, by the way. They're Israelite names, just worth mentioning. Not as well known. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So there you go. There's that's for free. So they are in exile. But as we're going to see, they have faith in God. And so exile for them isn't necessarily a place of judgment, but it's a place of testing. And so that's the context that we're in. So now let's read. And there's, I basically, I mean, there's different ways you can break this chapter down. I put it into four sections. And so I'm going to, like I did last week with David and Goliath, I'm going to read the first section. It's called the setup, all right? And I'm going to just make some comments through there. Then we're going to go to the next section. That's called the snitch. And you know what snitches get, right? No, okay. <laughs> Got the snitch. Then there's a little Q&A with the king, Okay. And then lastly, there's the deliverance. So we're going to work our way through those, making some comments so you can kind of see, feel the story. And then, as usual, we will try to make some relevance and application to our life. All right, so Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was 6 cubits, 90 feet high and about 9 foot wide. Probably it was on a pedestal. Some, some archaeologists think they found where this you know, big... Um, you know, brick uh, pedestal was, but, you know, we don't know for sure. King Nebuchadnezzar sent, well, first of all, he, he made an image of gold. So in chapter 2 of Daniel, he had had a dream of a big statue that was gold, silver, bronze, and then clay, all right? And that's, you know, not the Olympics, okay? So that was representative. His kingdom was gold. The kingdom was going to come after him was silver. The kingdom after that was going to be bronze. And there was going to be one that was mixed with iron and clay. And that whole dream was interpreted by Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's friend. And so now this is probably like some scholars think about eight to ten years later. And he's like, you know what? I'm not just the head of gold. I'm the whole gold. So this Nebuchadnezzar guy has got what I would call a slight superiority complex. Okay. 
He's conquered a lot. His kingdom has grown very fast. And so in verse 2, King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And you're going to hear that phrase, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up nine times in this chapter, which is hence why I call the first section the setup. Okay? King Nebuchadnezzar, what he's trying to do here is unite his kingdom forcibly, autocratically. So he's got all these different, you know, he's conquered Judah, but he's also conquered Assyria. He's conquered into Egypt. He's conquered all of these different places, and he's bringing all of these different leaders together to worship this image that represents his gods and, oh, by the way, him, together to try to unify under his authority. And so then verse 3. Lists it again, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar, you guess it, has set up. And whoever does not fall down, <laughs> this is where it gets interesting, shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. <laughs> Just got real, right? Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, thank you. The way that Hebrew storytellers tell their stories is when they repeat something, they're trying to get your attention. There's all that list of the music, the, all the instruments, six different musics and all the other kind of musics are, not musics, you can tell I'm not a music person. All the musics, <laughs> okay. all that stuff. It's trying to communicate something to you. And then the double listing, and it's going to list again all the different job titles, magistrates, justices, all that stuff. What's the author trying to do here? He's trying to get you to see that this is a big pomp and circumstance ceremony. This is a big deal. This thing has been in the works. In the, you, know, you don't just like whip out a 90-foot statue overnight. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar had been planning this event for a very long time. And, you, you know, invitations have got to be sent. People have got to travel. I mean, you know... This is a huge thing. And so, you know, you can, talk to, you, know, you can talk to Ellen about planning a ladies' event. She spent months doing that. This is, a, this is bigger than that, bigger than the New City Ladies' event, okay? So it's a huge deal, huge deal that he's trying to literally, he, you know, he's conquered and had massive conquests literally all over that region. And now this is the main event where he's going to try to bring everybody together. And it's all of his doing. It's all just a setup. That God's not a real God. We're going to see in a minute, that king's not the real king. Okay? <laughs> Strike up the band, but it's the wrong song. Now verse 8. We're going to get into the snitch here now. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. 
They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound, and then again all the music talk, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. You, know, you can just tell these guys are brown-nosing. Remember what you said, teacher? You said that. These guys, these, that drives me insane. Anyway, probably says more about me than the passage, but anyway. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image, you guessed it, that you set up. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you were to look in chapter 2, because of their work with Daniel in interpreting the king's dream, again, about 8 to 10 years ago, they were put into positions of prominence. They were kind of outsiders who were put in positions of leadership, and the people that were quote-unquote insiders were jealous of them. And so on this huge plane, you know, it was a, a big wide open space and the, the image is standing 90 feet tall and, the, and the, you know, you strike up the band and like literally, you know, everyone's heads down and rears up. They're all down. Nebuchadnezzar can't see, but there's little, you know, informants around and they see three guys standing. That's it. So the music gets done playing. They make their way up to the king. They have access to the king and they go and they tattletale on Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. Again, he knows these guys. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I mean, the fact that he even asked a question tells you that these guys know him and that he kind of respects them. He doesn't immediately throw them in the fiery furnace. He almost can't believe it. He doesn't question their loyalty to him. They're actually good and, in a sense, faithful servants of Nebuchadnezzar. Is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, I love this. When you hear the sound, and let's get the music out again, ready? The horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image I have set up, well and good. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast in the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God? Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? I think it's hilarious that he's going to strike up the band again just for these three guys. I think that shows you how much he respects them. I think it shows you that there's a, a connection and a relationship there, and he's kind of aghast that they would not do this. And so we saw that this is something that he has set up. We've seen that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been snitched on, and so now we're moving into the question and answer. And the first question that gets asked, as I just read, is by the king. Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer and say to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. They basically are like, hold the band. We don't need the music. This is not a hard one for us. This is not difficult for us to understand. And here's what they say. Some of the most inspirational words in Scripture, and for sure, as we, we sing in our prayer of illumination, which... I'm so, I'm so thankful, thankful you guys, guys sing, sing that, that so loud. I love, I love it. it. Shape, Shape and fashion, fashion us. us. 
I pray that these words would shape and fashion my heart, the heart of my family, and the heart of this church. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if this is how you're going to do it, Nebuchadnezzar, like you're going to do the whole fiery furnace thing, that's what we're going with? Our God, whom we serve, is able. Who's able? Our God is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, everyone say if not. Be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship that golden image that you set up. If I had a mic drop, I'd mic drop it. Historians and scholars will tell you that in between that eight to ten years where you know Daniel interpreted that dream of Daniel 2 for King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had gone to Jerusalem, raided the temple, and destroyed the temple. He clearly thinks he's stronger than the gods of Babylon. He feels zero threat by these three Jewish guys who claim to be worshiping the one true God. He believes he is stronger. But make no mistake that the reason that Israel and God's people were in exile wasn't because their God wasn't strong. It was because of their rebellion and their disobedience. And the prophet Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah 48, which is hundreds of years before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he was prophesying the exile. And by the way, we know that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego studied Isaiah and Jeremiah. There's other places where they quote it. And Isaiah 48 says that, that the Lord delivered them into the furnace of affliction because of their sin, but be comforted because I'm going to bring you out. These Hebrew children knew the word of God, they knew the promises of God, they knew why they were in exile, they knew who they were, and they knew that Nebuchadnezzar and his little image didn't change any of that. And so they said, this is not a hard one. Our God is able, and he'll deliver us now, and even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship that image. They do say he will deliver us this is uh, Mike's box of opinion. <laughs> I think they believe in the resurrection. Daniel 12 is one of the clearest, most explicit confirmations of resurrection theology in the Old Testament. And so I would not be surprised at all if these three Hebrew young men believed that God could deliver them in the moment if he decided to, or they were also most likely, in my opinion, believing in resurrection. So, so, this, this goes, goes really, really well, well with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. Verse 19. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It went from that, I can't really believe you're doing this to me, to now, you know, basically, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to execute you. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more then it was usually heated. That's, a, that's an expression for it. They got it as hot as they could get it. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments, and they were thrown in the burning, fiery furnace. It's almost like the, this, the idea is just like in a full-on rage, 
you know, you know Nebuchadnezzar's like, like, get the strongest guys. guys. I believe I it's probably shackles or chains, probably not ropes, I would imagine, but it doesn't specifically say. Get the strong men, bind them, throw them in. They've still got all their stuff on. It's just like bang, 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 bang. Next thing they know. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. And so the Q&A leads to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being bound quickly and thrown into this super hot furnace that is so hot that those even who go close to it were also their lives were taken. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. <laughs> kind of jumped out of his seat. So we move to the deliverance here. Basically, the, most scholars think it's kind of like, sometimes people have those, I don't know, they kind of look like a, a almost like a pear-shaped furnace in their backyard. You guys seen those? Most scholars think that something like that was built into a hill nearby. And so the top of it, they could drop you know, the, the three men into the top, but the bottom of the furnace is where the fuel was put in, they could see. And so that seemingly must have been the vantage point to which, at which Nebuchadnezzar and some of his leaders had. And so King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up and he declared to his counselors, didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? <laughs> Talk about a yes man. They answered and said to the king, true, O king. <laughs> I'm not contradicting him at this point. It's like, like, read, read the, the room. room. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, we, we did, did three. three. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, and the prefects, and the governor, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not even singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him. They set aside the king's command, yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make it a decree that any people, nation, language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. I mean, he still doesn't have it yet, but... Houses laid in ruins. There's no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Which God is able? There is no other God who is, say it, able. The king answered his own question. What God is there who can deliver you from my hand? The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So let's, let's try to make some heads or tails of this story. I would, I would say, say by, by way of application, there's really two things that I want us to see. Number one, I want us to see that Jesus enters our exile, and that's really what this story is pointing to. And then I want us to see what it means for us to be faithful in our exile. All right? Let's start with number one, with Jesus entering into our exile. 
So there's definitely, you know, when Jesus interprets the Old Testament, he says, like, search the Old Testament, for it testifies about me. You, you think it speaks of eternal life, but it's really speaking about me. And that happens like four or five different times in the New Testament. And so as we read these stories that are inspirational and uh, encouraging and, and uh, you know, all of those things, we don't want to lose sight of just like making it like a fable that we can pull a few principles from. But, but this story is part of a bigger story. That's why I go back to the introduction with the exile conversation. The exile that the people of God are in, in the book of Daniel, actually continues all the way into Jesus' ministry. If you were to read Matthew chapter 1, you would see that he's talking about the exile and the deportation, that the birth of Jesus happens at the end, quote-unquote, of this same exile. This isn't just some random story in the Bible. It's connected to the other stories. And, and what, what you, you see with Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate exile and the ultimate end of exile. And here's what I mean. When Jesus is on the cross, he makes seven statements, as is well known. One of those statements is a question from Psalm 22 that says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is Jesus experiencing in that moment? Exile. And why is he experiencing exile? Because he's not powerful enough? Were the Romans too powerful and they got him up on the cross? Were the Jews too clever and they got him up on the cross? No, it wasn't because of any lack of power, wisdom, insight, foresight from Jesus. It was the sin of his people. And so you need to understand and process the death of Jesus as Jesus entering into your exile and mine. We're in the Garden of Eden. We're Adam and Eve. And we're the ones who are saying, no, I don't trust you, God, that you're good. I've got my own plans for my life. I'm going to live the way I want to. And that decision leads to exile. We're like the nation of Israel. We prefer other gods to the one true God. We love ourselves. We love our money. We love our plans. We love all of the things more than we love the one true and living God. The Bible calls it idolatry. And that leads into exile. Which, as I said, remember, exile has two functions. One is judgment, separation from God. Ephesians chapter 2, I think I have this up on the screen. Therefore, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. That's real bible language for you were apart from God. You were in exile. And you didn't have any claim on the good blessings and promises of God. Don't forget that. You were there. You had no hope and without God in the world. But now, this is in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because he entered your exile. You never have to be again. And all those things get switched. Now you have God. Now you have hope. Now you're not a stranger to the promises of God, but you're a fellow member, later on in that chapter it says. You're not an alien, you're a family member. And so, you know, who was that fourth person in the fire? Scholars will, you know, some set of scholars, and I usually kind of err on the side of caution here. Like a lot of, you know, 
people I'm reading are like, well, it might have been an angel who was a type of Christ. And if you've been around for the last few weeks, you know I love types of Christ. But those guys are wrong this time. I believe that was a visitation of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. It's called a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus. He was with them in the fire. And the reason I think that is because Isaiah prophesied that the Lord would indeed be with them. In Isaiah 43, but thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Such good news. These stories are such good news. This is a story that when God's people are in exile, he doesn't leave them there. He comes and he enters into the fire with them. And here, it's not just that he entered the fire there and he wasn't burned, which is great and wonderful. And when you see Jesus at the cross, he's actually suffering. You know, Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way like we are. He's a high priest who can be touched with our infirmities and he knows what it's like to be hungry and tired and alone and mistreated and wrongly accused and to feel the pain in his body on the tree, 1 Peter 2. He entered our exile, amen? But he brought us out three days later. He rose from the dead. He actually, who is the God that can deliver? The one who entered our exile and rose from the dead, that God. And so this story is a pointer that Jesus enters our exile and rescues us from it. The second thing I would say about Jesus entering our exile is that ain't nobody going to be able to stop him. <laughs> Amen? Remember all the pomp and circumstance. I mean, the pressure of that moment would have been overwhelming for any of us. I mean, literally, you can just go through your mind. Like, he's been planning this for months, maybe even years. People have come from so far. You know, this is going to be a big deal. He's talking about fiery furnaces. Well, maybe if we just bow down, but in our hearts, we don't really do it. You know, and if we lose our spots, then how could we represent God's view? You could just imagine all of the rationalization, all of the power, all of the pomp, all of the pressure that's on these young men. But they actually don't, again, I said this last week, don't tell God how big your problems are. Tell your problems how big your God is. What they saw and what they knew is that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is not some weak, tribal, regional God. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the Lord of history. In fact, in chapter 2, he had laid it all out. It's going to be gold, then silver, then bronze, then wood, or then clay and iron, and then the Lord's anointed is going to come and set up his kingdom forever. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go, I'm rolling with him! So, don't forget who your God is. Don't forget who Jesus is, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He can save. He is the one who is able. He has and he will deliver us from exile. Secondly, by way of application, what does it mean to be faithful in our exile? So you come to Jesus, you believe in him, you're rescued and delivered from the judgment side of exile but we still have a lot of pain and suffering. Okay, good. I'm not alone. A few heads were nodding. I'm glad. 
the fact that you've been placed into Christ now. The scripture actually says in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 that Christians are exiles because we're not home yet. You know, I, this is hard because I, like, I grew up in one place for my whole life pretty much. My mom has 10 brothers and sisters, like deep roots. This is where we belong. That's how we roll, you know. I want to put down deep roots here, and I want to feel like I belong. And when I moved to Delaware, you know, some people are like, you're going to where? <laughs> but when I got here, it's like, well, do you have any plans to go anywhere else? No, I got no plans to go anywhere else. This is where God put me. I'm going to stay here. My mom says, bloom where you're planted. That's the kind of stock I come from. So it pushes hard against me to say, this isn't my home. This is not ultimately where I belong. New heavens, new earth, new body, face to face with Jesus. No more sin, no more curse, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. That's what I was made for. And so one of the first applications I think of this is like, do you actually feel like you're in exile? Or have you made it so homey here that you're kind of missing the story? Secondly, I would say, Faithfulness in exile means you need to be aware that there is cultural pressure to conform. Now, it's obviously not like, you know, at the end of the service, we're going to call you up here one by one and give you a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego moment. You know, <laughs> we're not doing that. It's actually much more subtle, especially in the West, which has been Christianized to a, a very significant extent. But the cultural idols of, you know, Money, sex, and power, pleasure, comfort, and ease. All of those things are idols that are trying to press you and conform you into their image. And so this story is like, you know, a splash of cold water on the face to be like, oh, which God am I worshiping? Jesus says to worship him and him alone. And so this story inspires us not to cave to the cultural idols and pressures that are around us, and if we do that, it's certainly going to be costly at times. This is my third point about being faithful. We need to be a church of even if. Say even if again. This is inspirational for me. We're going to lose our position. We're going to lose our lives. All of that stuff. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know God can. We're not in charge of God. He's not entitled to do that for us. So he might not. But even if he doesn't, we're staying faithful to him. One commentator said the, the, the real miracle happened before the fiery furnace. The fact that those young men stood when everyone else was on their face at the cost of their life. That was the miracle. We need to be a church full of even if Christians. You're facing the heat. You're in the fiery furnace. You know, the difficulty, the loneliness, the, the trials, the persecution, whatever the issue that you're facing that's bringing heat into your life. If you can stand there in the presence of Jesus and say, God, I'm pleading with you to deliver, but even if you don't, I will serve and worship you. I've had the privilege a few times in my life to be standing next to a Christian who just lost a loved one and they're singing God is good all the time. It's incredible. 
the reality and the presence of God when you have a group of Christians who are even if Christians. Even if God doesn't bring the temporary deliverance, I know he ultimately will deliver him and I will be loyal and faithful to him because I trust in him. Which Nebuchadnezzar got that right. He looked at those three men and he said, they trusted in their God. Stories of faith. So to be faithful in our exile, we need to be even if Christians. Two more and I'll be done. When you're in exile, in Christ, you're, you have his presence with you in the fire. The only thing that the fire ultimately does is unshackle your bonds. <laughs> Isn't that good? They went in there, turbans, coats, jackets, everything, bound, heels and wrists, probably with iron chains, hence the strong guys doing it, and the only thing they lost when they went in the fire was the chains. Believe with all of my heart that whatever affliction and fire you're in, is if you're in Christ, it's actually designed to set you free from things. 1 Peter 1, verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, he, by the way, in verse 2 of this same chapter, he had already called them exiles. In this... In your exile, you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. He used the analogy of smelting, where you put the gold in there, and the only thing that gets burned away is the dross, is the stuff that you don't need and that you don't want. And so you can be sure, if you're in Christ and you're in a trial, that the only thing that the fire is doing is not ultimately hurting you, it's burning away the dross. So that at the end, your faith will be to the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The fire only serves to free you. And finally, if we're going to be faithful in our exile, don't be conformed. Let's be even if Christians. The fire only serves to free. And then finally, we need to pray for wisdom in exile. Not everything was a fiery furnace issue. Amen? <laughs> We need to know when and where the line is. So I said in the beginning, kind of jokingly, but it's really important, their names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's their Hebrew given names. That's their identity. But what names did they go by? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Just take Abednego, for example, means servant of Nebo. He's going around and people are calling, you serve Nebo. That's your name. He didn't make a big deal about that. You know? They knew when and where to draw the lines to be faithful or not to be faithful. And so I would encourage us, if we're going to be faithful here at New City Church, then we need to ask the Lord for wisdom and ask each other for input so that we can know where are we being faithful or where are we being faithless when it comes to being faithful in exile. So how do we handle our money, our Wednesday night stewardship class? How do we handle our relationships? How do we engage with entertainment? How do we use and re, uh, steward our time? All of those questions. How do we do family? So obviously that's bigger than this sermon can, can get at this morning. 
but it's a very instructive example for us that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew where to draw the line. You tell me to bow down and worship an idol, I'm out. You want to call me Abednego? Fine, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so may the Lord grant us here at New City to be faithful, not to be conformed, to be even if, to know that the fire only frees us and grant us wisdom in our exile. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these stories. So easy to remember, so powerful in their application. Help us to be faithful in exile. And Jesus, we praise you that you entered ours in your name. Amen.